Hi everyone, welcome to episode 22 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, we'd really appreciate if you go back to episode 1 and have a listen. Please do rate, review, tell your friends, family, whoever may know about the podcast. We'd really appreciate it. That one reference, you know, that one recommendation or in referencing in a conversation would mean a huge amount um, to us. Any interaction that you may have uh, about the podcast, please do tag us on social media and tag the guests too. Uh, look, we'd like to give a shout out there to our sponsors, GRG Sports. Thanks very much, guys, again, for, you know, I've been very, very supportive over the last couple of months and for the continuous support on a weekly basis. Um, if you're looking for anything for Christmas or if you're looking forward into the new year, whether you're a sports team or a business, you know, be sure to get in contact with the guys up there in mail um they'll be sure to you know to sort you out and you'll find if you type in grg sports and google and they're on all social media platforms as well it is now time to bring on this week's guest and i'm delighted to be joined by jim breen founder of post learning and i'm here chairman of be cloud smart and founder of psychic and suicide and also the entrepreneur experience Green came to public attention in 2012 when he appeared in RT's Secret Millionaire. The experience allowed Jim to assess his own struggles and it was a catalyst for him setting up Sight Against Suicide in 2013. Recently, Jim set up I'm Here, which is an evidence-based initiative that trains employees in the workplace to become mental wellness ambassadors. Prior to 2012, Jim set up Pulse Learning and broke into the US market, a market that they still have a very strong presence in today. Hi Jim, welcome to the Inside View podcast. How are you? Hey Jimmy, good, yeah, very good, really good. Good, good. Um, I know we're, look, we're coming out the other side of lockdown, are we going into another lockdown? But we say, how was, you know, March and April, how were those months for you um, from a personal point of view and from a business perspective? Yeah, so uh, we're in October now, and uh, not sure when, when this podcast is going out. I came back from, uh, I generally spend three months of the Irish winter in Australia, so I've done for the last number of years, and, and it suits me. It suits me because um, uh, business-wise, with a lot of business going on out there, um, also weather-wise, light-wise, um energy wise sport wise it, it it works for me very well so my uh, typical routine is i go out to australia just before christmas and then i come back kind of around paddy's day just before just after paddy's day um this year i was coming back just before paddy's day so i literally arrived back into ireland just before lockdown was happening and uh jamie i guess for me it, I sort of had the advantage of flying across the world at that particular time. And it became very clear to me on that journey back that, um, you know, coronavirus, COVID-19 was, was going to be um, very serious. So literally when I arrived back, um, you know, we, we pulled together the team within a day or two and, um, you know, when you're when you're making change, Jimmy. Um, you know, being innovative, being transformational, making change, 
um, it's rarely popular. You know, when I say rarely, I don't think it's ever popular. Um, and you've got to take a certain risk and you've got to take, take a certain decision. Um, and for me, that decision was, this was going to be very serious. It was going to be um, likely going to be with us for a long time. And we made a call, you know, I want to say early. It was really only a matter of days in it. But we made a call, you know, a few days before anyone else that everybody from a work perspective was going to work from home. Uh, no travel and no meeting other team members, no meeting clients. And that was a that was a tough call because in our business, you know, where we're dealing with mental health and we're dealing with um you know, there's two parts of our business, there's the mental health component when I am here, and then there's the custom services component. And both of them are very, you know, they, they're very tactile. You know, you, you you really need to be with people, meet people. So that decision uh, was made where I was kind of dipping deeply into the sort of um, the credit bank, you know, of trust that, that the team were going to trust me, that this was the right thing to do. And um, the cost of that to the team was significant because not everybody is comfortable working from home and not everybody was comfortable where we're making this decision that you can't travel, you can't meet with clients, you can't meet with suppliers, you can't meet with partners. It was putting us at a disadvantage to everyone else. Um, and really it was being done because, you know, it, it was in our safety and it was in our, our team members' family safety, it was in our society's safety. And for an organization that, that works in the area of mental health and well-being, um, it was the right decision to make, albeit a tough decision. And then um, I guess for me personally, the you know, I'm used to being on the road, meeting with people, getting energy from people. So the change to you know working from home um was significant and and, and not difficult. It was a very big change. Not, not a particularly difficult change. Um, and I see it today, you know, that where I am, I've got to really mind myself. Like we were due to this podcast at five this evening and I asked to push it out to seven because my day just involved back to back to back to back to back meetings. And I know I knew I needed to get two hours to get down on the beach, um, which I'm very grateful to live on the beach here and to get exercising and to get into nature and to get, to get barefoot to to get on the beach, doing handstands, doing weights, doing exercises, doing running, to, to get out playing with the dog. That, that was important. And it has been for the last um, over six months. So I guess for me personally, I'm very grateful. Um, the transition has been fairly intense from a business focus and from a personal focus. However, you know, really conscious that for us in Pulse Learning and I am here and for me personally, it's been an easy, big transition compared with lots of other people who have really felt the brunt of this. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I lost my aunt to uh, to COVID early on in the in the journey. Um, she was a beautiful lady, a nun, you know, based in a convent in Cork, and. You know, she was at a at a risk age, and a number of the nuns in the convent got COVID, 
and it, you know devastated that community and for my father you know not being able to go to his sister's funeral um th- that's a big deal you know um and then fast forward to to sunday you know um our chairman since the very start of pulse learning bill hennebury he passed away unfortunately on on sunday morning early on sunday morning and his funeral was today and again not being able to go to that funeral and, and these are the things that you know we're all dealing with and we're all figuring out our way to navigate around them and and i'll say that i'm really grateful that for me for us it's been you know the very much the easier journey compared with with many others so the challenges have been there however we've we've been lucky enough to be able to navigate them you know simple things like uh, i love living in kerry i love i love living in the country i love living by the sea um i love exercise uh, i love getting out to nature um <clears throat> i um i got a border collie puppy at the start of the, the lockdown first time in my life having a dog and like I'd be lost without him now, Louis, like, and I would be absolutely lost without him. You know, he, he gets me, you know, going for a run in the morning. His, his brother um, lives next door to me as well. So the three, the three lads go off for a run in the morning on the beach. And, um, you know, you learn things there, like you learn patience, you know, they love both Louis, my dog and his brother, Captain, my neighbor's dog. They, um, they love the ball, but, they don't always bring it back, you know, and when they don't, there's a, there's a lovely patience there to stop and, you know, breathe in the sea air and look at the nature and check out the scenery and the kind of things that, you know, in general, I hadn't slowed down enough to appreciate for most of my life. And, uh, you know, the dialogue goes, the mantra goes, you know, um, this will slow people down and when when people say that they're talking about others and I I know that for me it's very much slowed me down and I'm I'm very grateful for that so you know certainly it's been a there have been challenges within it however really grateful that um being able to navigate through those challenges with with relative ease very good very good and the few things there you 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 mentioned and we'll we'll touch on um, as the interview progresses. But I suppose we'll bring it back to the to the early days. I actually found it very interesting that your background is is actually in civil engineering. Um, how did you, and you went to NUIG Galway? So how do you how do you end up doing civil engineering and then setting up post learning in your late twenties? How did that come about? Is there a direct link there or was this, did it happen kind of by accident? Yeah, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> so I, I grew up in Galway and uh, I went to the secondary school I went to is called the Bish, St. Joseph's College, but it's called the Bish in Galway. And um, school, and my school years were they were a very difficult time for me, Jamie. You know, I, I I hadn't figured out how to manage my own mental health and well-being at all as a teenager. Um, and even before being a teenager, you know, from relatively young years, from you know, you know, 
certainly even before I was 10 years old. Um, and I didn't have the language for it, but society didn't have the language for it either. You know, there was, it was, it was not understood that, you know, a young person could have those kinds of challenges that could be helped by getting help and support. You know, it was, uh, it was understood back in the seventies that young kids could be difficult and could be uh, trouble and could be causing trouble and could be in trouble. Um, that was understood. What wasn't understood as well was <clears throat> that, um, you know, young people can have mental health challenges and well-being challenges, just like, you know, any age group. Um, and going to school for me was, was a really difficult time and growing up was a really difficult time. And I'd say in lots of ways, you know, my, my maturity and my, my growth was arrested, you know, by the challenges that I had with mental health and well-being. And I didn't really apply myself in school. I, um, I remember my, uh, my, my principal, principal of school, Brother Angelus, um, he was a good man, a really good man. And uh, he came to me one day and he said, you know, my French teacher um, was referring to me as the Scarlet Pimpernel. And I, I didn't get the reference, but it was, they seek him here, they seek him there, because I was never in school. I, I never showed up for class. Um, and the principal of the school, I guess, there was a, uh, an understanding that he had for me, the tolerance he had for that, that um, it was more marking my card that the, the teachers were on the warpath about me rather than giving out to me for not showing up. And um, sport was was there, but it wasn't really a savior, you know, because sport was was difficult. You know, I was um, I was a very unpopular um, kid that made other people's lives, you know, misery. And you know, I remember in later years, some of my um, you know people I would have I would have you know, rowing was my sport back then still a sport I enjoy today. And the people I rode with back then, you know, um, you know, years later would say, oh my God, we were, we were terrible to you. And I would have caught, yeah, you were. But years later again, I kind of realized I didn't, I didn't make it easy for them, you know. And um, today, what I'm really grateful for is the people that I am rowing with today are the people I was rowing with when I was 15 and 16. And we get on great. And, um, you know, either they've all changed <laughs> or more likely I've learned and, and I've developed and I've healed. Um, so the decision to do civil engineering was was really, um, you know, fill out the CEO form and see what you get. I'm happy enough to get engineering, but it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a passion. It wasn't something that I was particularly interested in. And again, it wasn't something I applied myself to. Um, you know, I was I was proud of the fact that I was part of the do pass fast class, which meant back then, you know, there'd be seven questions on the paper and you'd have to ask answer five. So if you answered two of the five, that was 40%. So if you did two sevenths of the entire course, you know, you could pass. Um, so that was always my my kind of aim, you know, to do the least amount and pass. And, you know, I was so proud of, you know, the results I'd get because it'd be like an average of like 42 percent 
40% being a pass, I go, oh, brilliant, you know, zero wastage of effort. Um, and I failed my summer exams in third year. So I had to repeat the summer. So I just, I just got it wrong, like by the smallest of margins. And, um, and then I passed in fourth year and I, I was an engineer, but I was, um, it wasn't in my blood, you know, it's, it's interesting, like, you know, full circle, I'm, I'm 50 this year and, uh, I, I, I bought, a at the start of lockdown, I brought my rowing boat here to the house and the weather was so good. If you remember, like the weather was calm and it was bright and it was great. And I was able to row my boat on the sea here, which it's not designed for, but the weather was so calm, I, I could do it. And uh, since then, I've bought a, what's called a coastal boat. So it's a rowing boat that's actually designed for the ocean. And um, that's here by the house. Um, and the other boat I have is inside in, in Tralee that I row on the canal. And I'm building a boat shed, a simple boat shed. It's more like a box, but I call it a boat shed. But just the... The pleasure I'm getting out of, you know, engineering that, just, you know, designing it, building it, you know, um, putting it together, the carpentry of it, I enjoy. And probably I enjoyed engineering more than I gave it credit for. It just, it just, it never felt right, Jenny, because, because I didn't feel right in myself, you know. I remember, I remember with cycling and suicide, visiting prisons, and it occurred to me very strongly that the people in prison often look for hope outside, you know, so it's outside of prison, it's outside of the relationship that they're in, outside of the gang that they're part of, outside of the addiction that they have outside of the the um uh, youth experience that they had outside of the bad education outside of the society that's against them outside of the bigotry outside of the racism outside of the intolerance outside and i get that and i'll also respectfully challenge that the only hope that really is worth kindling is the hope inside you know the hope within like the, the the things you can do and i remember having this conversation actually with a with a chap who was serving serving a, a double life sentence in port leash and uh i met him as i was doing a big run so i was i was running 50 kilometers a day during the time i i met this particular chap and uh when I finished the run, because I was doing it for a couple of weeks, <clears throat> um, I got a letter from him a couple of weeks later, and he had decided to run with me inside in the prison yard. He didn't necessarily do 50 kilometers a day. It wasn't important. He did. He ran with me. And it was this idea of the hope within, you know, and I was really, I was really proud of him. Uh, I felt that it, it might be that first step to building that hope within rather than blame or shame or fear or, you know, putting it, putting the problem elsewhere. And I think 
for me, I began to form that journey of slowly, slowly, you know, healing and repairing and learning and becoming a better person. Um, you know, as a older, but certainly wasn't there when I was uh, when I was in school or when I was in college, and um, the engineering experience was was fine, but for me it was all about pushing everything to the limit. It was it was working as hard as I could. It was it was you know uh, getting as fast through the career ladder as I could. It was it was you know putting myself in in the in the, in the firing line, getting to places where there was no safety net. Um, I remember on one occasion, you know, the builders' holidays. You know, you, you you take builders' holidays. It's like a two week period where all builders take the holidays. And I was working with Kent's in Clamell at the time as a civil engineer, and uh, the holiday started on the Friday afternoon. And I I was working in um, Little Island in Cork at the time, so I was I was thumbing a lift from Clamell where I was living at the time down to Little Island and back every day, and. Um, there was long day, it was long days like it was just crazy long days um and I, I got a lift at times from some of the other people who might be passing <clears throat> if there were subcontractors who were coming from Kilkenny or coming from Clamell that picked me up um but there were long days and came back that Friday evening and the following morning got up at five and walked out to Court in the Floor which is the headquarters of Kent's just outside Clamell and I, you know, met the uh, the owner of Kent's at the time, a guy called Gus Kearney, <clears throat> and uh, I offered to work with him for the two weeks of the holiday. And uh, he he asked me the time. I told him it was um, ten to seven, and he told me um, he had pretty colourful language. But he, his message was basically, if I if I get home quick enough, I'll get uh, get back to bed before my wife knows I've gone. And that's where I should be and take my holidays. Um, and as I was walking out the door, I said, well, that makes two losers today in this room. And, you know, he said, okay, let's do it. So, so I ended up having this great experience with him, but I was always at the edge. And we, we did some really cool things for that two weeks. And he, I learned so much from him. And, um, but I was always at the edge. And then... I got a job with the German railway company. Again, it was at the age because you needed to have German. You needed to have railway engineer experience. I didn't have either. I went to the interview and they asked me, could I speak German? I said, yeah, which is the German for yeah. And then they asked me, would would, would I mind if they did this interview in English because they wanted to practice their English? And I said, okay. Um, and I got the job and went out and, you know, couldn't speak the language you know and <clears throat> i remember actually at the time um you know it was i was going out on, on the first of april april fool's day 1993 i guess um or 1992 where are those years 19, 1993 and uh you know the idea to go out to germany and at the time I had a had a young family, a young daughter, and to take that risk and to go to Germany, you know, without German, 
to work with the German railway company without railway engineering experience. Um, you know, it just seemed kind of a, a natural step at the pace I was operating at. And, you know, came back from Germany, having learned German and having learned a load of stuff. And I, I got a job with a company called Costal and Abbey Field. And <clears throat> again, you know, the, um, my chairman of Pulse Learning who passed away on Sunday, he was my boss in Abbey Field in Costal. So I've known him like since 1994. <clears throat> and um, his boss is a guy called, was a guy called Chris Sanders and, and Chris texted me this morning. So still connected with these people all those years later. But Costal was a time where again, it was, everything was at the edge, you know, everything was no safety net. Like I remember one day um, I needed to get Tipex or something, you know, and uh, I went down to the store and you have to sign for a bottle of Tipex you know, that was the way it was back then. So I signed the form, got my bottle of tickets or whatever it was. And later that afternoon, I signed for four million pounds sterling on behalf of Costal that, you know, like it, it, was, it was right and it was wrong on so many different levels because ultimately if anything went wrong at any stage, there was no safety net. So Costa was this amazing experience where I got to really, you know, do loads of things. And some of that was designed. Like I remember, I remember my job title was a, was a translation from German because I got the job in Germany before I came back to Ireland. And uh, when I met the head of HR and I'd be feel, he said, you know, we're going to have to, I have to change two things about your contract. We're going to have to change your salary because there's no way we can afford to pay that salary, even though I'd signed the contract. And he also said, uh, we have to change your title because nobody will understand what it means. And uh, I remember saying to him, I have a big problem with one of those issues, with one of those items, one of those changes. He said, well, you know, we can, we can talk about it. I said, no, there's no, there's no discussion. The title stays. And um, he looked at me. It's okay, you drive a hard bargain. And yeah, he, he probably thought it was, I don't know, I don't know what he thought. But uh, the advantage of holding that title was that the fact that nobody knew what I was supposed to be doing gave me an opportunity to do whatever needed to be done. And um, the salary figured itself out very quickly because, you know, once you can prove that you can make shit happen, um, you know, and you're able to, to sell that to people in the right way with the right timing. Um, and then an opportunity to move from kind of there into manufacturing. And that was a, that was a job opportunity in Tralee. So now it was 26 and I was, offered a job as general manager of a manufacturing facility in Tralee. And again, I knew nothing about manufacturing and it was an injection molding and assembly plant and I knew nothing about plastics, nothing about injection molding. And they knew it, but I guess I had the reputation of somebody who was making shit happen and able to learn and whatever. And to me, the shift from civil engineering 
as I learned it in college, to railway engineering in German, to doing this job in Costal that was everything from negotiating with British gas to managing their catering contracts to building extensions, building new parts of their building, uh, managing some legal disputes that had come into play before I got there and working with design teams and you know every day it would be something different um to then going into manufacturing um it, it was all natural um and in a way you know it sounds like it's kind of a a pretty kind of cool story but the reality was i was i was deeply unhappy you know through all that time like and i was I was burning the candle at both ends because, you know, as long as I wasn't standing still, I was fine. You know, but you put me in a in a room on a on a Saturday morning without anything to do, or a Tuesday afternoon. Um, you know, and that that was that was hard. You know, getting on. You know, back in Costal, I was flying back and forth to the UK every week and, you know, managing a whole series of building works in Ireland and a whole series of building works in the UK and all other things around that. And that was easy. You know, what would have been hard would have been to be in a job where there wasn't enough on, you know, and uh, to have time. And again, in Kleinhaus and in Tralee, like the people that we hired back then in you know in 1996 um i'm still connected with them today like you know i met one of them a couple of days ago and you know great friends and they've helped me over the years in lots of different things and different jobs but, but the relationship has also changed and you know, we're there for each other if there's if there's any but that did happen much later you know it was a there was a respect i guess i had again for being kind of this force and you know making things happen and moving things forward and then pulse learning was founded in 1999 and I, I, it was actually registered in november 99 and my first time on the internet was like september october 99 i hadn't been on the internet um until a month or two before pulse learning was, was established and um and I've been I've been with Pulse Learning for twenty one years. Now I've done lots of other things as well, but that's my longest ever job by a long haul, or the longest company I've been with by a long haul. And you know that journey with Pulse Learning of, you know, again, you know, landing in the states and you know, literally. You know, get to a phone book and you know finding the first clients, and you know a couple of months later, you know having NASA and Yale and Citibank as our first three clients, and driving, driving, driving the business. You know, all of that was relatively easy. It was the toll it took on you know relationships around me, because while I was doing all of that at that frenetic pace and now you know Costello was back and forth across you know from Ireland to the UK 
in pulse learning it was to, to east coast us to west coast us to canada to australia to new zealand to europe um and, and that pace suited me you know um and then in 2012 um everything changed you know i got very lucky and a, a life event happened and um that was probably the beginning of you know the, the the next phase if you like um but it took me long enough like i was, was 42 which is um a lot older than you are now and you've learned enough more so far in your life than i had learned by then or maybe even that i've learned so far so um so the, the change jamie from you know engineering to manufacturing to to e-learning to software to mental health that part makes sense in the context of everything else um what what's probably the bigger surprise is finding the time to kind of really you know find that hope within that i was talking about earlier and really uh heal and learn and develop and and in many ways become a lot more effective as a business leader as a social entrepreneur as an entrepreneur because it it feels great to be the hero and go out and make those sales and make those connections and make those contacts and you know bring the bear back into the cave and skin the bear and then eat the bear but it's it's much more enjoyable to like we have today an amazing team that are empowered to go out and catch the bear and skin the bear and cook the bear and share the bear and you know that's what we have today like we have an amazing team of incredibly talented people who you know my job is to help sometimes by getting out of the way sometimes by coaching sometimes by enabling um and that's where you know that that's where um that's where i've learned to be most effective just uh, before we, we, we go on any further, um, you know, into Secret Millionaire and what happens, you know, from, from then on, um, I found it very interesting, that story about when you went over to the US and opened up the phone book and uh, chancing your arm with NASA. Do you want to give a, a brief insight just into that? Yeah, I suppose the, the, the part of the story, I guess, that, that maybe, you know, I, I haven't really talked about before now so the headlines were you know arrive over into into newark which is new jersey so jfk is in queens and newark is in new jersey and i hadn't even realized that there was an international airport in newark because i hadn't been in the states it was my first trip over there with pulse learning and i knew germany i knew france i knew the uk from my time in costal and climbers but i didn't know the us but i had been there in a j1 visa in 1987 but this is now 2003. Pulse Learning is doing really well in Europe. And I felt that we needed to move our focus to the US. So um, I arrive over there, get into the hotel, and uh, it's this really, really horrible hotel. Uh, dark chocolate brown bed linen and a 40 watt bulb. And 
you could tell the place hadn't been cleaned or washed, you know. It was the kind of place where as you're walking in, you notice that the rooms are rented by the hour, you know, so never, never a good sign. Um, and I, back then, no matter what type of hotel it was, even if it was a place of ill repute, there was always a telephone book and a Bible, a Gideon Bible and, a, and the local telephone book. And I mentioned earlier that I went to school in the Bish in Galway and my, my career guidance teacher at the, when I was in school, my guidance counselor, they call him today, uh, it was a guy called Paddy Scanlon. He was a really lovely man. Um, and he, he really cared for us. You know, he really, uh, he was extraordinarily bright and he, um, he really wanted the best for us. And uh, he had said, you know, to me one day, he said, you can be anything you want, you can be, you can be an astronaut. So when I arrived into this room, um, this hotel room, there was a smell in the room, you know, it was just, um, it, it was a, it was a bad smell. It wasn't a bad smell in terms of, it was a bad energy, you know, really bad energy. And, uh, you know, in my life there's been a number of times where um, I've wanted to go home, you know, I've wanted to hide, I've wanted to uh, crawl under a rock. You know, one of those occasions was was, uh, was a really difficult day in, in, in May of um, 2015 when when my dear friend Bernard O'Connell died on cycling and suicide. And, you know, on that day in 2015, when Bernard died and on that day in that room and on other days, I can remember, I didn't want to be the leader. I didn't want to be the, um, the guy who could make shit happen. I didn't want to be the guy who, um, people were relying on in that moment. I just wanted to, if I could disappear, if I could go back 24 hours or 48 hours or a week, rewind the clock and not have put myself out there that I was going to do X or I was going to do Y, just, just retreat. I would, you know, be sorely tempted to take that offer, but you don't have those offers. You don't have those opportunities. So you got to keep going. And in that room that day, you know, it really was a, was a tough moment, a testing moment of like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm risking all of the business and this notion that we need to be in the US. Why? Like, we're doing fine, we're doing great, we're doing better than great. And I want to go over and I want to, you know, every bit of advice was do not go to the US. It's going to cost a million dollars into the market. You're going to find it very hard to, to hire good salespeople. Dollar, euro, war in Iraq, uh, worldwide recession, all the reasons not to go there. Um, and yeah, so then I picked up the, the, the phone book and, uh, went to N, went to NASA and, um, managed to, you know, find a way ridiculously to, to get a meeting the following morning in Florida. Um, because I'm, you know, I got talking to a woman whose name was Maureen and, uh, you know, just, just made that connection between Maureen and being Irish. And she just decided she was going to help me. And, um, literally, you know, checked out of the hotel five minutes later. Uh, thankfully I didn't have to stay there that night. And 
I just continued my trip, went back to the airport and flew directly to Orlando. And, um, but, but the part of it was, you know, the story when I, when, when it suits, you know, it can be told as a kind of a funny inspirational story of, you know, kind of landing in a place and, you know, using your charm and using your, you know, um, your, your wit and using your, your, um, country skills you know irish country skills to, to to get out of a bind the other side of the story is you know the the absolute uh you know fear that you feel in moments like that you know um and and you know one thing is jamie that you need to be careful about when you survive those fearful situations is you know, people talk about the imposter syndrome, you know, where you wake up every morning and you're just waiting to be caught out. Well, there's the opposite of the imposter syndrome as well, you know, where you you really feel like you're untouchable, you know. So I've got through that. Give me, give me the next one, you know, throw the next thing at me. And the reality is that you can you can actually feel all of those feelings in the space of a few minutes, you know, like you can feel like a complete imposter where you're fear stricken. You can feel invincible and untouchable and you can go back to feeling an imposter again. And that is, you know, the adrenaline coursing through your veins. And, um, it's also, uh, you know, deep-rooted fear that yeah, yeah you need to be mindful of you need to be careful of because you know when when i landed in nasa and managed to to make that deal happen you know i had a i had an idea of a plan a today i don't want to be going in there with a good plan a a plan b a plan c and a plan d because you know you can have beginners look with things that's fine uh, pulsarnian has been successful for now 21 years you can't rely on look for 21 years because if you do that look will run out so you've got to find a way where you're managing risk rather than taking risk you got to find a way where you're you know you're looking at what's happening you're not afraid to take risks and you really are figuring out what's the way where you can build all the advantages possible to work in your behavior, you know, to work in your favor. Um, and, you know, in that moment, in that hotel, you know, there's a quick, when I tell the story normally, you know, there's color and there's context to it and whatever, but there's a part that I, that I don't speak about. And that's the part going from the room down to reception you know, and that was a really tough, lonely walk where, you know, you're, you're carrying your bags back down to reception to check out, to get in a cab, to figure out how you're going to get to Orlando for a meeting the following morning that you don't even know is going to be worth doing. And there's no plan B, you know, that's, um, if you feel good in a situation like that, 
I think there's something really wrong. <laughs> you know, you, you, th that's when you can only feel dread. You know, you can only feel, um, and, and I don't want to, I'm probably already way too heavy, but to add to the heaviness, maybe a little bit is, you know, if there was a gift in feeling like I felt when I was going to school, you know, as a, as a nine-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, as a teenager, you know, if there was a gift to the dread I felt as soon as I left 34 Round Road, which was the address of my home, and as I walked along Round Road and down through Chantilla and to Cook's Corner and in by the canal and then into either St. Pat's or into the Bish on Nuns Island, you know, I felt dread four times a day. You know, going in in the morning, going home at lunch, going back after lunch, going home in the evening. You know, and dread was not something that I was unfamiliar with. And therefore, the dread I felt going from the room down to the reception was not an unfamiliar feeling, you know. Um, and there was, there was something about that that kept me going, do you know? Um, but it wasn't, it's not the healthiest way to live your life. No, there's a much healthier way to live your life, which is the, the way I found since, you know, my experience with cycling and suicide and, you know, mental health in general, and, and now I'm here. So with, with the cycling and suicide, it came on the back of the secret millionaire. Um, do you want to just give, an overview of how it came about and why did you cho choose a bike? Um, why didn't you drive? What was the, the symbol of the bike at the time? So, um, I mean, again, there's no, it's very hard to explain the logic of cycling and suicide and how it was set up because it wasn't logical, it wasn't rational. It wasn't, uh, it, cyclic and suicide was set up because of, because of hope, because of magic, because of belief. Um, and, and it was based on a couple of, of strategies, right? So one of the strategies was events drive actions and actions drive behaviors, you know? Right? So it was, it was about, you know, like, so I was asked to take part in Secret Millionaire I don't watch TV. Um, I said no. Um, and then quickly changed my mind before I met them the next time because they asked to meet with me and met them next time. And they were very good and they were very professional, the people from RTE. And they, they allowed me to uh, do something that hadn't been done before, which was I set some conditions. And one of them was I, I wanted to choose i wanted to focus on mental health and this is back in 2012 and back in 2012 mental health was not a popular topic it wasn't a topic that made good tv and the idea that uh, an entrepreneur quote-unquote successful successful businessman successful entrepreneur would be battling with mental health that was a big risk that they took you know because i discussed with them my own challenges which is not something that anybody 
I never discussed with anybody before. Like the first time I spoke was with the producers of of Secret Millionaire, and there was a reason for that. And the reason was because I felt that we could create a platform to do something quite special. And I said that if if, if we are successful in creating something out of this, I really want you or to to be behind us. And they agreed that they would, which is phenomenal. And then the third thing, as I said, is like, I want you to be above mental health. I want you to agree that you'll be behind us if, if we create something special here. And the third thing is, I want the program to be real, like completely real. And again, you know, I speak about how grateful I am that I'm still connected with the people I went to school with, who I'm still rowing with today, and the people I went to college with that I'm still connected with today, which I'm very grateful for. And I'm very grateful for the people that I worked with in Costal that again, I'm still connected to today. And in Kleinus, I'm still connected to today. And in Secret Millionaire, the same applied, you know, the nurses that I met with through Secret Millionaire, you know, are still connected today very strongly. Um, and the other people I met on the program were still connected today. And part of it was because it was real. It was absolutely real. You know, we, we created a real program and it was format TV and there was certain format parts to it. It still was a real program. And Gary Keane was the director and he did an amazing job, like an amazing job at keeping it real. And then when the program aired, coincidentally, on 10th of September 2012, which is World Suicide Prevention Day, the, the response was something that, you know, there had never been a response to a program, a format TV program like it before with an RTE. I remember Brent Pope, um, uh, who I met with weeks later, he actually went to the director general of RTE and, and he, before I even, even knew him, and he said, that program is, uh, is special. And then coincidentally, and again, there's the magic, um, randomly, a person that I met doing the Camino that I then met with in Killarney to meet with Mike Buckley from Kerry Coaches. Um, and Billy was, was the chap's name. And, and Billy saw Mike Buckley come on board immediately with Cycling and Susan before Mike even knew what it was. Like he, he came on board, he was our first guy to come on board. And so grateful, so thankful to him. And he, he gave us a coach, he gave us diesel, he gave us a driver for two weeks, not even knowing what cycling and suicide was, because we didn't know, you know. But he, he believed in it for whatever reason. And Billy saw this and he he, he bumped into Brent one day in a, in a spar shop in Dublin two or three days later. And he said, uh, there's a friend of mine setting up a charity. Would you like to be involved? And Brent said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm just... I'm just flat out. I've, I've, I've got my own art charity going on and I've got TV punditry and whatever. And Billy said, okay, sure. And he left and he left the shop and he, he actually walked back in the shop again. He said, I'm sorry, Mr. Bob. I'm really sorry. This is not the way it works. So there's a friend of mine. Can I, can I, can I pitch it again? And Brent kind of looked at him. And Brent's a big man, but he's a friendly guy. And he, he looked at him and he goes, sure. He said, this is a friend of mine. His name is Jim Breen. And Brent says, is that the guy who's on Secret Millionaire? And Billy says, yeah. I said, can you give me his number? So Brent calls me and Brent became our first ambassador. Like this was not strategic. This was just pure chance, pure magic, you know. And that happened, Jamie, time after time, after time, after time, after time. People we met that we had no right to meet, people that we got connected with. You know, Roz, Purcell and Brezzy came on board. Um, and again, like, you know, I called uh, Roz's agent. Um, didn't know Roz, 
called her called her agent her agent called me back and she said yeah Roz seems interested for some reason and I go oh, great uh, uh, she'll call you in the next 10 minutes I said fantastic so I was driving up to Galway time I pulled in I googled Roz who that is Roz R-O-S no it was R-O-Z and um, finds out you know Roz is um, who Roz is she calls me 10 minutes later and she says yeah I'd love to do it then a couple of weeks later she said, uh, I know Brezzy might be interested too. I said, great. It's like all this stuff, just there's no, there no rhyme or reason to it. It just happened. But it happened because there was a fundamental strategy, which was go forward, keep things simple. It's okay not to feel okay. Belief. It's absolutely okay to ask for help. Behavior. It's okay not to feel okay. Get people to believe that belief. It's absolutely okay to ask for help. Get people to behave like that behavior. And if we can do that, we can change culture. If we can change beliefs, if we can change behaviors, we can change culture. But just keep it simple. It's okay not to feel okay. It's absolutely okay to ask for help. Make sure as many people know that as possible. Make sure as many of those people believe it as possible. Make sure as many of those people behave in that way as possible. Focus on root one. Focus on the power of one. Focus on the impact that one person can have with one person. At the moment, you were that one person. Um, so I wrote a two-pager on cycling and suicide, uh, you know, uh, about a week after Seeking Millionaire. And I just sent that out to all the people who had contacted me from the program. And um, they came back and they said, yeah, we're in. Now, I wrote it in a way that was very honest about the idea, but it was written in, in language that I think created the impression that you know, it was already in place somehow, even though people knew it wasn't, but it was written kind of in that, in a very visual way that this is what it will be like. We will have a 52 seater bus, but this is before I even met Mike Buckley. And I had this vision of a bus leading a cycle um, around Ireland with thousands of people taking part. And we'd have mechanics vans and we'd have paramedics we'd get the guards involved. This is before I met Seamus Nolan, who's now superintendent Seamus Nolan, who was inspector Seamus Nolan at the time. I didn't know that I would meet with, with Seamus, that he would connect me with uh, superintendent John Cairns, that we would meet all the other guards that we met, that they would connect us with the PSNI. Knew nothing about that. I had no idea that Mike Buckley would come on board and Mike would in turn bring on other sponsors with us. I had no idea that uh, MSL, in Ballsbridge and John Ryan in particular would come on board and they would provide us with all the vehicles. I had no idea that Evan McLaughlin would come on board and she was a deputy principal at the time in the school. She's now a principal in the school and that she would create a schools program, like this genius schools program that got us into schools, that got us um, um, uh, approved by all of the school's bodies, all of them. You know, association of principals and deputy principals, the guidance counselors, all the, the schools bodies um, that we would get into those school bodies in in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland, we would get people to, you know, year one, uh, get on a bike, year two, become a marshal or uh, become a sponsor or become a homestay provider or homestay providers that end up taking part in the cycle all this magic occurred the, but the principle around it was keep it simple the principle around it was events drive actions 
and the principle around it, come back to your question, was connect people. And cycling was important because it was people on the move. And particularly for men, it was shoulder to shoulder. So it didn't require um, men to have eye contact with men. It's interesting. You know, that just made perfect sense to me at the time. And I, I love, I, I love TikTok. I adore TikTok. Uh, it's where I'm learning so much at the moment. Like people go LinkedIn and podcasts. And I do all of that. But TikTok is a place where I'm learning stuff. And I just saw something on TikTok last night, which again spoke about you know, this dynamic of male to male, male to female, female to female. And we, we our bodies move differently as we're talking with. But particularly for male, being shoulder to shoulder made a big difference. And it also worked for female. It also worked with female to male, male to female. So the idea of moving, the idea that you could have a conversation where you didn't have to get distracted by making eye contact, you could have a conversation on the go and you could have a conversation where it would be drawn out by inspirational talks twice, three times, four times a day. Um, but but I got to be careful, Jamie, because we had a vision. We had no plan. There was a two-pager, um, but at the start, there was really no plan. There was, there was a compelling vision, and there was, I, I, I believe firmly you need four things to make shit happen, and shit stands for some highly impactful things, right? So S-H-I-T, some highly impactful things. So not many things, and not some low impact, some, but if you want to make some highly impactful things happen in your life, I think you need four things. You need to have a really clear, compelling vision. However, that in its own isn't worth anything. You also need to have the ambition to make that vision happen. I know a lot of people who've got a very clear, compelling vision, but they're also kind of, yeah, it happens, it happens, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And there's nothing wrong with that, but just it won't happen unless you really have got this strong ambition to make it happen. And then the third thing you need is you need capability. And if you have a really strong vision and an ambition to achieve it, but you don't have the capability either yourself or within people that you can surround yourself with, you're wasting your time. But even if you have vision, ambition, and capability, unless you have, and the best word I, I can I can find for it and I've been thinking this way for 20 years and I still haven't come up with, the, with a better word it's like willingness you know it's the willingness to take that walk from the hotel room down to reception to the willingness to get in the cab to go back to the airport the willingness to find a flight to go to Orlando the willingness to show up the following day and meet with you know the, the chap in NASA you know, without a presentation deck, without anything other than your desire to realize your vision, be ambitious to do it, and and prove to him that if he gives you a chance, you don't currently have the capability, but you will have the capability by the time it comes to execute, and you will execute with precision. And again, it's different today, but this is back in 2003. You can look somebody in the eye and you can say, you know, trust me, I'm not asking for a safety net. I'm not asking for a second chance. Trust me, this is what we can do with you, for you. This is our vision. You see me here in front of you, and I'm, I'm part of a team that have equal ambition. 
we will pull together the capability to do what we're saying we're going to do and I'm here, I'm willing to do it and I'm willing to come back here tomorrow, I'm willing to come back here the following day and that to me, Jamie, that trumps a business plan, not kind of nine times out of 10, but 100 times, 100,000 times out of 100,000 times, that trumps a business plan. And you need a plan. <laughs> you know, you need, you need all of this. And I think when I, when I um, amassed a mentor entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, when I'm asked to, to work with, with people, it, it's really working with them on, on that mindset as much as the, um, the process and the systems, which is really important as well. But, you know, you, you must have first and foremost as an entrepreneur, if you're going to create something out of nothing, you need to have this, this ability, you know, and again, just layers to this, but on the vision part, you need to be able to break it down into the first creation and the second creation. So the first creation is how you describe it. But that first creation, people need to taste the second creation. They need to be able to smell the second creation. They need to be able to touch the second creation. In other words, the second creation is, is the house that's built. The first creation is the drawing of the house. They need to be able to look at that drawing and feel themselves walking into that kitchen and seeing that aga, you know, a cook or the aga stove or to see the, the bath or to see the view out to the ocean. You know, they need to be able to see that and then you've got your second creation. Without that first creation, you're not going to get anywhere and it needs to be compelling. And then you need to show that you've got the ambition to make that happen. And then you've got to have the capability or pulling the capability around you. And then finally, you've got to be willing to do it when nobody else, um, nobody else is backing you. You know, that's when you really need to be willing because the... Um, and that's why, you know, I, I was very lucky with Pulse Learning for 21 years. Um, I had one person who always had my back, uh, Bill Hennebury. Um, You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm already missing him, you know, desperately. Um, he was ill for some time um, before he passed on Sunday. But he was, uh, he, he always was there, you know. And, and sometimes, by the way, being there for you is the person who will be the strongest vocal opponent to get you to be clear on your thinking. And then as soon as you leave the room, uh, after having this debate, you know, where you're on polar opposite sides, you know that as soon as you leave the room, you're both lockstep together. You're both, you know, going for this. The fact that I would be challenged privately would not take away from the fact that uh, publicly, I would could rely on his support, and it never even needed to be asked for. It was it was always going to be there, and that's part of capability, you know, building that capability around you. And it's certainly part of willingness, you know, because it's very hard to do this, Jamie. Um, always on your own, you know, you need to be able to find the hope within for sure, and you also need to find people around you who will help you nurture that hope, who you know will be there for you when things get tough. Um, and and will be there for you, particularly when when things are depleted. And I suppose just to like, would you say it's important so to have you know from an entrepreneurial perspective and even from a life perspective um, to have you know a close 
network of people. Obviously, if you have too too many, if you have too many, it's probably not good either. Having a close, tight knit group is vital. They're the foundations to to succeed. Yeah, there's the one thing, Jamie, about about um, as I'm, I'm kind of the more I'm learning, right? One one thing it was a friend of mine, Gabe Batstone, shared this this um, thinking with me, and he he picked it up from somebody else, and it's the idea of counter troops. So if you want to be successful, you have to be able to hold two or more counter troops and still act. So for example, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. True. Uh, don't mend it unless it's broken. True. Too many cooks spoil the broth. True. Many hands make light work. True. You look at this from a, from an entrepreneurial perspective, social entrepreneurial or, or commercial entrepreneurial, you need to be able to handle counter-truth. So one truth is it's important to have a small cohort of people around you that you completely trust. And trust is the only currency. Um, you also need to be able to differentiate between somebody's opinion even somebody's advice and what you need to do. So there's nothing wrong with making a decision that goes against everybody's advice. I'm lucky that I've avoided making mistakes because I was advised not to make them. True. There's also certain things that I should have done, but I was advised against doing them and I should have done them. True. Um, and you gotta figure that out. You know, there's no there's no um, simplistic approach here. Um, I will say though that having a trusted cohort, like a cone of trust around you, people that you can go to, and bear in mind, Jamie, you know, in my opinion, they're they're different people for different situations. You know, and you need to be able to speak different languages with different people and you need to have as much as like-minded is a really good truth you know you need to find like-minded people i think it's at least equally true that you need to find people who think so different than you you know like in pulse learning some of the most senior people in pulse learning are are, are absolutely polar opposite to me in terms of the way we think about things and and that's really good because it means that if if so, for example, the CEO of Pulse Learning is Patrick Feely. Pat's pa a great guy. He's a really he's honourable. He's massive integrity. He's so smart. He's phenomenally hardworking, smart working, great leader. And Pat and I think very differently about things. So we can have a an intense dialogue debate. Um, if somebody is listening in from the outside, they might call it a row or an argument. The, the, the difference between it and around an argument is two things. Number one is we don't talk across each other. You know, we're listening intently to what the other person is saying. And the second difference is when we leave that conversation, if Pa is accountable for the item we're discussing, then it's his call. Whether that's my view or his view, it's his call. If I'm accountable for the issue, then it's my call. Whether I'm going to agree with him or whether I'm going to take my own view, 
And the only thing that's important is, and it feeds into trust, is that you're listening to the other person. Um, I was listening to Ray Darcy, who was also a huge supporter of cycling and suicide over the years. And um, I was listening to him on the radio last year, and he, he said something kind of just offhand, but I, I loved it. He said, uh, some listener texted in to say, you never, an argument was never resolved within an argument. You know, and I, I love that thinking. You know, you, you, I, I've, you've never heard people who are shouting and roaring at each other, and then all of a sudden, one of them goes, do you know what, I think you're right. Gosh, yeah, I think I'm wrong. Like, that never happens. So you've got to find a way, Jamie, of being intensely um, focused on uh, presenting your opinion and also listening to the other person's opinion. That's hard, right? So, and, and there's no point in doing that with like-minded people because in that scenario, you get nothing out of it. All you get is an echo chamber. So you need to have people who are like-minded at times. You need to have people who are unlike-minded. You need to be sometimes passively uh, or actively listening where you're silent to learn. And other times you need to be be prepared to learn as you're in, engaging. So we, we call it engage and see or engage and learn. And when you want to engage and learn or engage and see, that doesn't happen static. That, that happens in an active way. Um, and one of the things with cycling and suicide was, you know, nothing stayed passive ever. We moved, we changed, we were always on the move. Um, you know, even, even when we're doing interviews with media, we did it on the go. You know, we, we moved, we, we planned while we were moving. You know, it, it, was, it was a movement-orientated um, concept because we wanted to be a movement. You know, so like it's, it's pretty basic, right? You don't create a movement by staying still. <laughs> you know, as, as obvious as that is, like, and again, I, I got to be careful here because, you know, there's, there's probably a counter truth to that. But I don't know any movement that was created by people sitting down. You know, like I can't, I can't see how, how that can happen. I, I I can't see, that's maybe my limitation. I can only see a movement being created by people moving, physically moving, you know, physically engaging, physically learning. Um, and that's what we did with cycling and suicide. So every time we went into school, we learned every time. So the next school we went into, it was better. And the next school was better. And, and every time we engaged with a community group, you know, um, Kilbacanty outside Gort in Galway, you know, when we, when we engaged with Kilbacanty, we learned, we listened. So that the next community up in Moville in Donegal or down in Skull or Goline in West Cork or in, um, you know, in, in Skerries in Dublin or wherever, in Noburn, in, in Meath, Westmead, wherever we learned on the move we engaged we learned and we applied and that was that was the um, that was the signature jamie of, of cycling and suicide 
Well, you know, I suppose males in, in Ireland, I suppose maybe it's just an Irish thing or it's maybe it's a male, uh, you know, a male's thing in, in, in general. But, you know, they can be very kind of introvert and they kind of refrain from, you know, speaking about their feelings. Um, I suppose it's pretty fitting in what we're in at the moment with the COVID-19. Let's take in two stages. What advice are... I wouldn't say maybe what suggestions would you give to people, you know, 30 plus who mightn't be that willing to show their feelings because they were never encouraged to perform when they were younger. Um, maybe the younger generation are more open to know, perhaps, but the older generation kind of aren't. And it's, what guidance would you give people? Because I know at times they can probably think, look, I'd want to be, you know, associated to have depression or have that stigma attached to me. Would what suggestions would you give to people in that situation? So, um, it's a really complicated area, and, mm. and it's and it's complex and it's layered. Um, and, and yet, there is a there is a very simple evidence based approach, and that's the approach we take with NIM here. So the first step is showing you care and what that what that means jamie is you you make sure the person really believes that you care about them and that doesn't require always talking it doesn't require always you know conversation sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't sometimes it's as simple as sitting with the person um sometimes it's about accepting whatever going on in their life without judgment. Sometimes it's about listening really deeply. We, we talk and I'm here about the clear skills, compassion. So compassion is the desire to act to relieve the suffering in another. Compassion is very interesting though, because compassion means that you, the skill of compassion is a skill where you can sit with somebody's suffering without taking it on board yourself. So that's the first skill, compassion. The second skill is listening. And sometimes you're listening to what's not said. You're listening with all of your senses. Empathy is the E. And empathy is around, you know, being prepared to put yourself in the other person's shoes. A is acceptance. That's accepting whatever they're saying, wherever they are, gender orientation, sexuality, uh, political views, religious beliefs, doesn't matter. Whoever you are right now, I accept you. And then R is real, being your real self. So you are your real self with them. That's how you show you care. That's how you build a contract of trust. And that's the first step. The second step then is ask the question. And that does require the framing of a question um, based on what you've learned through show you care uh, to make sure that you're being direct. And that's something that um, we as Irish people, um, you know, need to learn the skill to do because we'll often avoid asking that question. So it's important, you know, if, if you spot me, Jamie, that I'm, I'm not acting in my normal baseline behavior, you show you care, which builds a contract of trust. And then you say, you know, Jim, I can see there, you, you know, you, um, you don't seem yourself, you're, you're not exercising like you used to, or, you know, you, you, you seem quite tired. Uh, you're, you're talking about um, no reason to go on. You, you seem, you know, from what you said, you know, I'm asking the question then, I'm saying, is it possible that 
you need to see your doctor? Is it, is it possible that what you're feeling is more than just sadness? Is it possible that now might be a good time to, you know, uh, meet with MABS and get some financial advice or whatever? So that's, that's, that's ask the question. And then the final part is call for help. And that's where you act as a signpost to that person. You say, look, okay, we've realized here together through show you care, through ask the question that there's an issue. Now, um, let's let's find the help and support. And that might be emotional well-being, help and support. It might be physical health. It might be spiritual. It might be social. It might be financial. It might be working career. Um, what I would say though, Jamie, is as complex as the area is, the I am here approach is show you care, ask the question, call for help taking an, an, an issue or barrier whatever that might be it doesn't have to be a barrier around depression or anxiety or bipolar it could be anything it could be anything that somebody is um got a block on or struggling with or would like to achieve any blockage at all um you know whether you're it's funny like you said about younger people and older people like it's interesting that well the theory is that older people find it harder to talk to younger people. That's correct only in certain circumstances. So for example, um, young people might find it harder to talk about relationships than older people. Uh, older people might find it harder to talk about finance than younger people. Do you know, like, and, and, and we're all different as well. So it's really about um, kind of, just meeting the person on their terms. So, you know, to answer your question, what advice would I give is it's it's really I can give advice to the person who might be battling and struggling for sure. But really it's about this approach. You know, as as your as their friend, as their husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, you know, friend, workmate, clubmate, we can all help each other by show you care, build a contract of trust by ask the question, which is to validate that something actually is the matter. And then by call for help, put your signpost where that help and support is available. And, you know, like we, we have, I am here, we've got 850,000 members across four continents from a standing start a year and a half ago. Like it's the, it's the fastest growing mental health and wellbeing program in the world. Like one of our clients, Woolworths in Australia, they have 200,000 team members and 60,000 people in Woolworths have completed the I Am Here Learning voluntarily. 60,000 people in one company have completed the learning voluntarily. Like this is off the charts. Now it's, it's a brilliant program and it's, it's really well designed. However, What's, what's powerful about it is you can apply it. You know, you, you can get the courage, the confidence and the skills to be able to show you care, ask the question, call for help, to be able to help somebody else to find help and support. You don't become a, a counsellor or a therapist. You don't make a diagnosis. You don't judge. You don't label. All you do is you show you care, you ask the question, you call for help. You know, for any of the uh, hundreds of thousands of people who are listening to this podcast or 12 or however many people end up listening, uh, particularly this later on because we've gone way over our time. Um, you know, I'm here is available. It's free for anyone. You get it free for three months. So in three months, you can take all of the course where you can learn everything. And if you want to continue then and continue to become a member of the tribe after three months and get access to ongoing help and support, you pay 10 euro a month 
but it's it's free for everyone to learn these skills and that's the way we've designed it you know we want the more people who have this belief in behavior the better i don't know where you've asked this before you probably were but what drives you the, the fuel the energy is 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 purpose you know if if, if i'm doing something that's purposeful um i and if i can find purpose in something um it's, it's very easy to motivate me if i don't see purpose in what i'm doing um I, I really do find it a slog, you know, so like there's been times in the last few years where I've had to do things that um, just life, you know, will, will you, you, it's part of being an adult, you, you just certain things you have to do, but there's no purpose to them. They're just, you just have to do them. And I will procrastinate and, you know, do them at the last minute and do them begrudgingly. Whereas if, if it's got purpose, that's fine. Purpose is the fuel for me. So, uh, I'm definitely driven more by a healthy sense of purpose now. Um, you know, Phil in it, um, in case anybody doesn't know, hopefully everybody does, you know, lead singer with Tin Lizzy. He, he um, said of himself once that, and Bruce Shields might have said it as well, you know, he was very balanced, he had a chip on both shoulders, you know. And sometimes to be, to do something, you do it out of fear um sometimes you do it out of love um you know we we understand that it really doesn't matter whether you do something out of fear or love it really doesn't matter um but you need to do something out of out of something stronger than for me it's it's more out of love you know it's more out of um you know that that's what gives me joy gives me pleasure and you know i'm very grateful i don't need to work and i'm really grateful and the reason i work as hard as I do is because I find great purpose in it. And, and I'm working with people who are equally purposeful about what they do. Perfect. And when dealing, you know, with people in professional or, you know, personal capacity, what do you look for in a person? Um, that's maybe a bit general, but what are the kind of qualities, you know, you, you think to yourself, or oh, there, there are good qualities that that person has or, there are bad qualities. What are the maybe two or three main qualities you'd, you'd seek in, a, in an individual? So um, I think when, when we're hiring people, um, you're looking for learners, not learn it. Right? You, you know, you really want somebody who's, who's, who's actively learning even during the interview, you know, um, one of the questions I'm, I may ask people is, you know, tell me, teach me something. If I said that to a 16-year-old, they will have five things that they will throw at me quick, like real quick. Um, you know, I remember saying it to somebody in New Zealand, and uh, she said, uh, if you're listening to, um, to respond, you'll have your tongue on the top of your mouth if you're listening to listen you'll have your tongue at the bottom of your mouth i don't know if she's right or wrong i don't know if there's science behind it but i love that i love that thinking so when i'm listening to somebody and i find myself thinking about my answer to them i just move my tongue down to the bottom of my mouth i love learning and i love learners and i love people who can share their learnings that's, that's number one number two is um you you really want people that you can trust 
you know, um, there is a uh, there is a really it's a really valuable currency, you know, to be able to trust people, and I'm so grateful that the people I work with are people that trust me and I trust them, and it's 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 hugely hugely important. Um, and that doesn't come easy and it, and you lose it real fast. And the third thing I think you're looking for is, you know, again, people who will, will buy into your hiring, people will buy into your vision, buy into the ambition that you, you need them to have, who will add to the capabilities, particularly if it's different capabilities than you, than you have. And will also be willing to do what needs to be done in order to achieve it. And sometimes being willing means that they're willing to rest. They're willing to take a day off. They're willing to slow down. They're willing to get other people to slow down. You know, willingness is not always about um, working hard. Willingness is, is often about, um, like, for example, if you're learning, you know, the, the psychology of learning is intense focus and you know the neural pathways and the plasticity happen as a result of intense focus, but they only happen when you're actually resting, really when you're sleeping. So you need to have people who can who can be intensely focused and who also understand the value of rest, the value of you know allowing the the plasticity form in order to find those new you know um, neural pathways, etc. You know, a lot of, you know, successful people, whether it's athletes or, or uh, business people, um, I know it might have changed, you know, now, but we'll say back in the early days and up to now, what is your morning routine? Um, would you be an early morning person? Naturally, I think a lot of, you know, successful business people would be. It's a funny one because um, I think it's... Um, I, I know a number of people who, um, for a lot of my life, I would have survived on very little sleep, up early, bed late, traveling, different time zones, different hotels, uh, you know, constantly on the go. Um, I don't think that was being the most effective I could be. Um, it wasn't healthy either. Um, for me now, I, I do go to bed early and I get up relatively early. However, I really work on getting clean sleep and, you know, whether that be seven and a half hours or eight hours or eight and a half hours in the past, I would have been kind of embarrassed to say, yeah, I'm sleeping for eight and a half hours. Not anymore. You know, it's, it's good. Sleep is critical to be on, to be completely on, you know, to be, I, I would much prefer to um, have people um, who are sleeping plenty and then tuned in and, and you know, as opposed to people who say, oh yeah, I manage with four hours sleep and they're stifling yawns, you know, in the afternoon. You know, to, to be able to be focused is, is important. So my, my routine in the morning, um, uh, a couple of things. Number one is I'm, I gotta be careful because I, I, I can keep score a lot. Like for example, one thing I'm gonna do this evening is I'm gonna just make a note on the training I did today and my nutrition today because I'm working with a new online coach, Mike Finnegan. And the reason I'm working with Mike is because I'm finding that my energy levels aren't as high as they could be. 
I'm working hard, I'm training hard, and I just I need a little bit more energy to keep up with where I'm at, which is fine. And I don't believe the answer is to slow down. I believe the answer is to get better sleep, you know, you know, get to bed, sleep better, eat better, watch your hydration, avoid alcohol, all the things that are required. Um, but at the same time, I'm as 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 kind of dedicated as I am to that. Um, for example, when when Jamie Finn comes here to learn how to swim in a couple of weeks, we won't be counting strokes. We won't be focused on technique initially. We, what we'll be doing is is getting you know in the water and celebrating that, and then we'll be focused on getting the face in the water. Nothing else. Just focus on that, and then to breathe out underwater. Great. Then you know, step by step. So my morning routine is less fixed. However, um, Louis, my um, uh, my my dog, my new dog that I got um, at the start of lockdown, he's great because what it means for me is morning I go for a run on the beach with him at the start of the day. And it's a great way for me to start my day, you know, because I'm out, I'm active. I've got my bare feet on the rocks, climbing over rocks, on the sand, in the water. Uh, that really works really well for me. Um, I tend then not to eat until 11 o'clock. Um, so I'll have uh, water, um, hot water, or I'll have hot water and lemon, or I've got a kind of a clay thing that sometimes I, I drink um, to kind of just clean clean out the gut. Um, and then on a good day, but I'm not too concerned about it if it doesn't always work, I'll have stopped eating eight hours after I started. So if I start at eight, I'll have finished at 7 p.m. Not today because I'm doing this podcast. I have my dinner um, put on just before we started. I'll have it as soon as we finished. Um, and that's okay. It's a little bit later than normal, but I'm not, it's not a big deal. It's not a, not a problem for me. Um, but I do feel that the morning time getting my body clean is, is important, you know, so drinking water, um, getting out, getting exercise, getting moving. Movement is a huge thing for me. Inversions are a huge thing. Handstands, rings. I have a set of rings here in the house that, um, I, I love playing with, um, getting upside down, moving, locomotion um uh getting moving early in the day suits me better and it's interesting actually because this week my dog louis is in galway for a few days he, he's coming back on friday and as a result i'm not moving as much in the morning and i'm feeling it you know so it's a good little reminder for me that uh it it it, it serves me well to get out with louis to bring him for a run uh, to get active with him um, you know, and again, I'm so lucky like where I am here, I can run down to the beach, climb across some rocks, get to the edge of um, Barrow Beach and come back, get it all done in 40 minutes. And it's just pleasurable, you know, so um, so that's the that would be the, the ideal morning routine on the weekday. And then at the weekend, again, if I if I found myself that I haven't got my sleep, um, I do believe you can you can catch up on sleep. So I, you know, I know some um, uh, sleep experts will will are the experts are divided on that, but I do believe you can um, catch up on sleep at least to a degree. So if I sleep in 
um, on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning when I'm not rowing or something else, I, I'm okay with that, which took me a long time, you know, because my sort of, um, my mind was telling me I need to be up, I need to be on the go, you know, the day is wasted. And I still struggle with that a bit. So to be okay with um, being in bed, as long as I'm not on my phone, as long as I'm not, um, you know, wasting the rest, doing something else, I'm, I'm okay with it. Perfect. And look, we'll, we'll wrap it up now in, in a second. Just um, last question. As, you know, look, as a successful entrepreneur, um, what advice would you give to people who are starting off on their, you know, on their entrepreneurial uh, career, albeit it's a different time frame, but what, you know, it's a different era as such since, since when, you, when you started. Um, what would you suggest? Set a goal. You get very clear in your vision about what that means. You decide whether you have the ambition or not. If you have, you decide whether you have the capability or not. If you have, you decide you're going to be willing to do it or not. And if the answer to any of those questions is no, that's fine. Find something else, you know, because there's, there's other things out there. But if, but if you haven't got a clear enough vision, if you haven't got um, ambition to achieve that vision, if you haven't got the ability to build up the capabilities yourself and other people, and if you're not willing to do it, then my best advice is do something else. And again, not everybody's um, going to be um, a great entrepreneur. You know, people are going to be great teachers, going to be, people are going to be great dentists, people are going to be great um, politicians, people are going to be great, lots of things in, in the world. To be an entrepreneur, you really do need that, um, you know, that, that particular set of things. Um, and within that, it's about being very careful about what you decide is your vision, you know, because you only have so much time, so much energy and, you know, saying no to things is more important than what you say yes to. Cause you know, saying, saying yes to something means you're saying no to a whole load of other things. So every time you say yes, just think about it. Like even doing this podcast, I'm always happy to help you, Jamie. Um, always, um, always happy to help any of the Finns and, you know, and and everyone has been so helpful to me over the years um goes around saying but i wouldn't always say yes to things because saying yes to somebody means you're you're effectively saying no to somebody else you know and that's that's part of being an entrepreneur as well is is being okay with that perfect look on that note jim i took a, a lot of your time but uh there's definitely a lot of a lot of interesting things there um thanks very much for taking time out and coming on an inside view podcast you're very welcome thanks jamie I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Jim. Uh, such an amazing story, uh, very in inspiring, extremely, uh, you know, successful businessman, and you know, definitely for you know for raising awareness about mental health in Ireland um, and that initiative. What he's at currently with I am here, um, definitely a lot of benefits to be got from it, and you know, it's definitely something that a lot of corporations should should look into. Um, Look, that's all from us on this week's podcast. So please do get in contact if you want to contribute in any way. Um, and look, you'll find us on social media. It's at underscore on the ball team building. Over on Facebook, it's on the ball team building. Over on Twitter, you'll find us at we are on the ball two. That is the digit two. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon and again, thank you all for listening.